James chapter 1. I'm excited that today we get to start a journey in a new book. And for the next several months, we're going to be in the book of James. As we walk through, we'll take a quick break during the month of December to focus on Christmas a bit. And we'll pick up again in January and we'll finish the book in February. And my hope in every book study we do is that we wouldn't just get through it, but that as we go through, you pick up on big picture items in the book. So that if you are on Jeopardy one day, and the category is Book of James, you would annihilate that. All seven questions, you would get them all. Uh, so it's, it's not enough for us just to start and finish. I want you to walk away with a base of knowledge as well. And so you ought to know the author of this book. And he identifies himself in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me in your Bibles. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. So, we learn a lot just from one verse. Uh, Immediately we know what type of literature this is. This is a letter. The same way you and I think about letters and use letters. Do you remember letters when we used to write on paper and put them in the mail and send them away? That thing that you read about in a history book, well, that's the type of literature this is. It's a letter. James is writing to a familiar people. He's writing about subject matters that he and his audience know about. He doesn't spell out every detail about what's happening with them the same way you don't when you write letters. You assume knowledge on the part of the recipient. And so here we have a letter, and it's written by a man who identifies himself as James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've long believed this James to be James, the brother of Jesus. And I love the way he introduces himself. He doesn't name drop his famous brother. He he doesn't identify himself as, oh, that James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, he calls himself what? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So James's primary relationship to his very famous sibling is not that of brother and brother, but it is that of redeemer and redeemed. And who's the audience? Who does James write this letter to? Well, he he gives us a clue in verse 1. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. This is a bit of poetic language, and there's some scholarly, nerdy debate about just who the recipients are of this letter, who is James writing to. Uh, But here's what we can know with confidence. From verse 1 and other clues throughout the, the letter, James is writing to Christians who come from Jewish backgrounds, and these are Christians who are living under persecution, who are facing suffering, injustice, all kinds of hardships. Because of these outside forces, these Christians are finding their faith fractured. They're wavering a bit in their devotion to the Lord. And so the reason James writes this letter is not just merely to say to these suffering Christians, it's going to be okay. You're nice. I'm okay. You're okay. We're going to get through this together. That's not it. It's not just mere platitudes. Rather, he writes to call them to a whole life devotion to Jesus Christ, even in the midst of difficult days. That phrase, whole life devotion, is for me the primary theme of the book of James. Uh, He's concerned with what we believe, and he's concerned with how we live out what we believe. 
And so if you and I study the book of James right, the Holy Spirit is going to press in on so many places in our lives to call us to obedience, repentance, to walking with Jesus in every area of our being. It's such a contemporary message. The book of James doesn't feel like we've got to blow off the dust and the cobwebs and do some work to make it fit in 2017. It feels like it could have been written last week because it speaks to the needs of the modern church as well as the ancient church. Needs to walk in whole life devotion to Jesus Christ in the midst of every trial, every hardship, every injustice, every sickness. Jesus Christ is everything to us. Now, let me ask you a question. How do different worldviews explain the purpose of suffering? Buddhism says all of life is suffering. That suffering is caused by attachment to worldly things. Therefore, suffering has to be transcended by not clinging to material objects or relationships. Hinduism teaches that suffering in this life is punishment for wrongs committed in previous lives. Therefore, a person who today seems, in, who seems innocent and yet suffers does so because they are not innocent. They are guilty based on the actions in past lives. So, for example, children who suffer in poverty and starvation do so as a result of mistakes they made in their previous lives. Islam teaches that suffering is one part Satan's doing, another part it comes from Allah. It's allowed by Allah to test our humility and faith. Many Muslims believe that suffering and adversity strengthen one's faith and lead to repentance and good deeds. And then there's Christianity, which is altogether different and unique in our approach. Look at what verse 2 says about suffering. James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Here's something I know to be true. Uh, Oftentimes when we go through difficulties, we feel isolated and alone. We feel like we are the only ones who go through these things. And so... There's probably someone here today who thinks they alone walk into this room with a limp. They walk in here alone, the one who's going through difficult days. They see everyone else smiling. It seems like everything is okay. So I want to do a quick informal survey, and I'd ask you to participate for the sake of someone else in this room. If you are facing a trial of any kind today, would you simply raise your hand up? Thank you very much. This word is for all of us. No one is, uh, is exempt from verse 2 and the power of it for the way we live our lives. We are a hurting people. We face all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of struggles. The Lord meets us today with this encouragement for our hearts But let's just admit the obvious. Verse 2 feels like such a cliche. It feels plastic. It feels like James is telling us to just paint on a smiley face, pretend like everything's okay. Oh, this is pure joy what I'm going through. That's how you and I think about this verse. And when we read it or when we share it, oftentimes we do so 
as if it's telling us that joy is the only acceptable emotion in our suffering, but that's not the case. When we hurt, we will cry, and we will question, and we will be confused, and we will be fearful. James tells us in the mix of all of this, on our hard day, we add in the perception that here is a moment of pure joy. So does it sound ridiculous that in the hard day, you and I can be characterized by joy? Does it sound unattainable, unrealistic, not rooted in human experience? I would say far from it. I think what James says this morning is a missing ingredient to so much of our suffering. And my goal today in preaching this passage is to encourage you to respond correctly when you face trials. By the showing of hands this morning, this has immediate application upon our reading. So James says trials are an occasion for joy. What is it that produces joy in our trials? That's what I want to show you in this passage today. I want to show you three sources of joy in the midst of our trials. I want you to follow along with me as I read James chapter 1. I'll start in verse 1 and we're going to go to verse 11. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. So in this opening section of James's letter... We have instructions for where joy comes from on the day of our suffering, on the day of our trial. So what are the three sources of joy in the midst of our trials? The first is this. It's God's refining work in us. When I face the hard day and I consider the reality that God is refining me in this, it's going to be a source of joy. Verses 3 and 4 lay this out for us. So, why should we consider trials pure joy? We know the testing of our faith develops perseverance. And so, in what sense do trials test our faith? That's a fair question. In what sense do trials test our faith? Well, the test is not whether or not we have faith. So, it's not as if God lobs the trial at us and then says, let's see if you really are a believer. That's not the test. The test is not whether faith is present. The test is the quality of our faith. So the trial is the place where our faith is refined. It's like a smelter's fire. Trials burn away the dross of our unbelief. Impure faith becomes purer faith 
when it's tested. And when our faith is tested, it results in a specific characteristic, according to James. What's the characteristic? It is perseverance. I didn't hear any hallelujahs, and I don't see anyone running a victory lap. For us, we don't think of perseverance as a great payoff. No one in the time of trial, or few in the time of trial, say, I just, I want perseverance from the Lord to be developed in me. But that may say more about us than it does about the value of perseverance. What's James talking about here when he talks about perseverance? Well, perseverance refers to more than just cold endurance, more than just making it through like a root canal or a timeshare presentation or a sermon on tithing. That's not funny. Not funny at all. Right? It's more than just cold endurance. Biblical perseverance is this. Here's my oversimplified definition. Perseverance means holding firm to the promises of God until every trial is finished. Perseverance is holding firm to the promises of God until every trial is finished. And the Word of God lets us know for sure every trial has an end date. Deliverance is assured for every follower of Jesus Christ. You can count on God's word in that. And perseverance means I'm going to hold on to the promises of God. Perseverance doesn't have anything to do with my strength necessarily. It's not about how mighty I am, how much I can endure. Perseverance means I am anchored in the promises of God that tell me he is with me no matter what. That salvation is mine through faith in him. That there's a day when the sky splits open and Christ returns and his kingdom is established once and for all. I persevere, I endure, not because I'm so great, but because he's so great. Perseverance says, I'm hurting, but I trust God. I don't understand, but I trust God. I don't have the strength for this, but I trust God. I'm afraid. But I trust God. That's perseverance. There's this gospel song I've listened to for years. It's by a woman named Brenda Waters. She passed away about 12 years ago. The song is called Victory. And the opening lines say this. I don't know how God's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to fix it. I only know God's going to make a way for me. That's perseverance holding on to the promises of God until every trial is finished. It matters how we respond to our trials. It matters that we turn to God in faith and that we cling to the promises He's given us. It matters how we respond. And what happens, according to James, when we grow in our perseverance? What happens when we believe God no matter what? James says in verse 4, that we will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So what's interesting here is that perseverance is not the finish line. That's not the end goal in our hard days. Rather, perseverance is a vehicle or the means by which we arrive at this maturity, completeness, not lacking anything. So the chain of events looks like this. The trial comes... We respond with confidence in God and determination to persevere. And that perseverance develops in us a wholeness of Christian character. 
Oftentimes, we feel like our trials expose us as weak, feeble, fearful. This is certainly true. But it's in that awareness when we trust in the Lord that He refines our character, helps us to be complete in our walk with Him. God is so powerful and so loving that He will take those situations that we think might otherwise damage us and He will use them to make us whole, to make us complete. God uses our trials to refine us. That, my friend, is a source of joy. In this pressure cooker moment, God is developing in me a Christ-like wholeness. What is it that produces joy in a suffering Christian? It's God's refining work. Second, it's God's gift of wisdom. Verses 5 through 8, God's gift of wisdom. The book of James is sometimes criticized for its seeming choppiness. It's kind of like the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. That's how it might feel anyways. You, you feel like James bounces from one subject to the next without a clean transition. And, and that might be a criticism we lob on this part right here of the passage. Verses 1 through 4, he talks about our trials. And then verse 5, he suddenly starts talking about prayer. But I think we can't divorce verses 5 and 6 from the subject of Christian suffering. He's informing us as to how we pray in the midst of the trial. And so look at what he says in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, have you ever felt like you lacked wisdom in the season of suffering? If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. So here in these verses, James is instructing us, as to how we are to pray when we face trials of many kinds. What does the prayer of the embattled Christian look like? First of all, it's a prayer for wisdom, according to verse 5. Again, no victory laps, no tambourines, no banners flying, none of that. When you and I pray in the midst of trials, what's our first thing we pray for? It's not wisdom. What do we want? Deliverance. God, get this away from me. Get me out of this mess. Is it wrong to pray for deliverance? Absolutely not. It's not wrong to pray for that. It's not wrong to pray for healing. It's not wrong to pray that God would scoop you up and take you out of the miry clay, put you on the solid rock. That's not wrong at all. But we can't skip over James's instructions here to us that in the moment of our suffering, we've got to pray for wisdom. Deliverance is guaranteed. Brother and sister Christian, you don't have to beg God to deliver you. Christ's death and resurrection is your guarantee that deliverance is already yours. It just may not come according to your sovereign will, but according to God's. So in that moment, we pray for wisdom. The fact that we don't pray for it may show our need for it. James sees our suffering in such a radically different way than we do. You and I think joy will come in the deliverance. What James is telling us is that joy abides no matter the situation. 
So we pray for wisdom. What, what is it we're praying for when we pray for wisdom? Well, according to the book of Proverbs, you could summarize it this way. Wisdom is the means by which a Christian can both discern and carry out the will of God. So wisdom has a knowledge component. We understand that. It's knowing something. And then wisdom also has an obedience component. It's doing something. If I know the heart of the Lord, if I know His will for me, then wisdom requires me to obey it, to walk in the way of the Lord. So if perseverance is believing God no matter what, wisdom is obeying God no matter what. Wisdom may give us direction on a decision. Wisdom may give us restraint in a response. It may lead us to forgive. It may help us to wait. Wisdom manifests itself in so many God-glorifying ways. So how is the Christian to pray from within the trial? We pray, God, give me wisdom, a knowledge and a fortitude to obey, to walk in your way. But the second way James tells us to pray is to pray in faith. Look at verse 6. When he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Those are, those are hard verses, right? Verse 6 says, when we pray, we've got to believe and not doubt. What is it that we are to believe when we are praying in this way? Oftentimes, we misinterpret this verse by assuming that this, the object of our belief is our plan of action for God to follow. So, for example, dear God, my male pattern baldness is a real burden to me. I pray, now this is hypothetical entirely, a friend of mine. I pray in faith, not doubting that you will give me a new luscious head of hair. Where's the faith in that ridiculous example? The faith is in the prescription. And so, prosperity preachers and bad friends will tell you that your faith has a creative force about it. If you believe in the deliverance you want, God will give it to you. Faith creates the answer. It obligates God. And I'm telling you, that is demonic heresy. And you've got to get it out of your brain and out of your life and off your TV and off your bookshelves. Our faith is not in our prescriptions, which come from a finite understanding of our situations. Our faith is in the God who has charted our course through the hard day. So faith abides in God when we come and pray in wisdom or pray for wisdom. But here's the struggle for you and I. I doubt all the time. And you doubt all the time. So these verses might feel like a hammer and, and, and we, might, they, we might walk away from verses 6 and 7 and 8 and think, oh man, I've really messed this up. No wonder uh, I'm hurting because I'm not believing right. I've got doubt in my life and that doubt cancels my prayers. 
But I don't believe James is talking about this type of doubt that is common to us in our fledgling walks with the Lord. Doubt, as James refers to it here, is far more insidious. In the Gospels, the opposite of belief is doubt. It's unbelief. It's not just a question, Lord, where are you? Lord, what's going on? God, I don't understand. It's not that. It is unbelief. It is a turning away from God and a turning to myself. It's rejecting the resources of heaven and trusting in the resources of this world. So when you read this on a day of sorrow, and you think, oh man, no wonder God feels distant. I've been doubting. Make sure you understand the nature of that doubt. There's a doubt that is common to the Christian experience, but there is also an unbelief that may reveal us to be unregenerate to begin with. So what happens to the person who doubts according to James? He says in verse 6, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. So the person who is divided by doubt, it's belief and unbelief, sort of side by side. This person is double-minded. They're unstable in all they do. So when this person prays from within the trial, they pray one day for God's help, and then the next day they look to the world for help. One day they need God to meet their needs. The next day they take action on their own with worldly resources to find the comfort they want. This person should not think that God is going to fall in line with what they want when they don't even want God. So James instructs us, pray. Pray for wisdom and pray in faith. And when you do, you meet a God who gives generously to all without finding fault. You don't have to convince God. You don't have to pledge your service in some way to Him. God, I'm going to do this for you if you'll just give me wisdom. His answer is already yes to that prayer. And He'll give generously to you in your time of need. The prayer of faith is a source of joy for hurting Christians. God has not left you alone. He is not deaf to your cry. He is not blind to your hurt. He will give generously what you need above and beyond so that you can walk that road with Him. So joy comes from our refining. Joy comes from the prayer of faith for wisdom. Third and finally, joy comes from the realization that God is our great treasure. God is our great treasure, verses 9 through 11. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. It says, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. How are we to understand what James says here? There are two options for you. I'll give them to you. You can choose the one you want, and I'll tell you the one that I side with. One perspective on these two verses sees the humble brother in verse 9 as a believer and the rich person of verse 10 as a non-believer. So in in this case, verse 9 to the humble brother 
Uh, that, it's an encouragement to that lowly believer to take pride in their position in Christ. Hey, things haven't gone your way. Life's been hard. Don't you sweat it. You've got a high position in Jesus Christ. And then verse 10 comes across as a warning of judgment to the non-believer who has all the goods this world has to offer but no salvation. So that's one way of viewing verses 9 and 10, the humble believer and the judgment-bound non-believer in verse 10. But there's a second view, and this second view sees both people as believers. And the words of verses 10 and 11 are not a threat of judgment to that rich brother, but rather an encouragement to treasure Christ in light of the temporary nature of this life. You're welcome to choose whichever one you want, option one, option two. As for me, I'm throwing in with camp two. I think that the humble brother and the rich person are both believers in this instance. Now, to be sure, there are places in James's letter where he speaks very critically of wealthy brothers or wealthy people, and there are times when those people are uh, identified as not believers. But James does not draw an exclusive line that says only the poor belong to the Lord and only the rich belong to Satan. He doesn't do that. The body of Christ has both poor and rich in it. And likewise, in Jesus' ministry, we see so many examples of rich people who are indeed his followers, people like Nicodemus or uh, Joseph of Arimathea or Zacchaeus, to name just a few. So being wealthy is not automatic condemnation, nor is being impoverished automatic righteousness. The issue is, what do you do with Jesus? Is he your great treasure? If you are a brother in humble circumstances, are you chasing after the treasures of this world? Or do you value supremely your high position in Jesus Christ? If you are a person who has a lot of stuff and means, do you put your value in the things you possess? Or is Christ your exceedingly great reward? You ought to take pride in your low position by worldly standards, which says though you have a lot, all that's just going to fade away like a flower under a scorching sun. It's got a shelf life. This stuff is going away. But your position in Christ is what lasts forever. So what's James telling us in these verses? He's telling us that regardless of our position in society, Christ is to be our great treasure. Impoverished, broken, hurting, wealthy, affluent, uh, social power, doesn't matter. Christ exceeds all of it. So regardless of your station in life, Christ is your great reward. Isn't that a source of joy for us? So if one day we walk with everything, we possess everything this world has to offer, and we lose it all the next day, we have everything because we have Christ. And if we have nothing to our name and never have, guess what? We have everything because we have Christ. We don't need two of these things. We don't need a lot of stuff. We don't need what the world considers success because we have Christ. And he will use us in our poverty and he will use us in our affluence to glorify his name, to proclaim the gospel, to see the lost come to him and for suffering servants to endure. Poverty is not a sign of God's judgment nor is affluence a sign of God's blessing. It's your position in Jesus. That's what matters most. Be poor and have Jesus, to be rich and have Jesus, 
to have Jesus is everything for us. Oftentimes when we suffer, we look at what's gone, what's lost, what are we missing? And those things, some of them leave holes that are never filled. It's a gap that's there forever, it seems. Christ is the only way we make it through. When when the trial that's come our way is that intense and so great, it leaves a scar for the rest of our days on this planet. Christ is the only way we get through it. So, here's what James has given us this morning. He's telling you and I that there's a better way to suffer. Rather than to throw our fists up at God, rather than to question His goodness and His character, you and I can find pure joy even in the midst of these trials. And that joy comes from the refining of our character. That joy comes from a prayer of faith for wisdom that God answers every time. That joy comes from treasuring Christ above all else, no matter what life brings our way. What's the alternative? There is an alternative. Instead of persevering in maturity, we could falter in atrophy. Instead of praying in faith, we could be paralyzed by unbelief. Instead of treasuring Christ, we could seek the comfort of worldly, finite goods. You see, the question for us is not whether or not the hard day is going to come. The hard day comes for all people, Christian and non-Christian alike. The question is, will you walk that dark valley in the joy of Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus? Have you turned to Him in faith for Him to save you from the penalty of your sin? It could be that your trials, your hardship has caused you to keep Jesus at bay. But I can tell you that my story and the story of so many others in this room and the story of so many in these pages is a story of where Christ met us in our trial and he awakened us to faith in him and he brought us through these hard days and is still bringing us through as we walk with him in faith. Jesus is the one you've sinned against. Jesus is the one who will pay the penalty. Jesus is the one who died in your place and then three days later rose from the dead. And since he rose from the dead, since he is God, we know this, that salvation is in him. And every heartache, every pain, every difficulty is redeemed in his great plan. So when we read James 1 verses 1 through 11, the first thing it calls us to above all else is a faith in Jesus Christ. James's words are not cliche. They are not plastic. They have been life and nourishment for suffering Christians since the day this letter was written. And when you devour the words of James, you come away with steel in your legs and iron in your guts because you walk with a great God, a mighty, powerful, loving God. The persecuted church has found strength in the words of James for centuries. A book called Back to Jerusalem, written by a man named Paul Hathaway, describes the plight of Chinese Christians in the secret church movement uh, in days when communism uh, was much more violent against Christians in China. 
And he shares the testimony of one house church leader, a, a man named Brother Yoon. And I want you to hear in the words of Brother Yoon the reflections of the words of James and the words of Jesus. Brother Yoon says, the past 50 years of suffering and persecution and torture of the house churches in China were all part of God's training for us. He's used the government for his own purposes, molding and shaping his children as he sees fit. That's why I correct Western Christians who tell me, oh, I've been praying for years that the communist government in China will collapse so Christians can live in freedom. This is not what we pray. We never pray against our government or call down curses on it. Instead, we have learned that God is in control of both our own lives and the government we live under. Instead of focusing our prayers against any political system, we pray that regardless of what happens to us, we will be pleasing to God. Don't pray for the persecution to stop. We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to live in a way that reflects His love and power. This is true freedom. So if you walked in here this morning, dressed great, but hurting, Jesus calls to you through the book of James. These words do not remain in the theoretical. They are for us nourishment today. That we would follow in the way of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There is pure joy to be found even in our trials. And James has shown us that direction today. So with trials in full view, it's time to choose the way of Jesus It's time to choose joy. Would you pray with me, please? I want to give you a moment to put into practice what we've studied this morning. And so if you wouldn't mind joining me in this prayer, I don't want to be the one to say the words. I'd like for you to pray. So I want us to practice now that prayer of faith for wisdom. So would you take a moment just in the silence You'll hear rustling and coughs and other things. That's not a big deal. I want you to focus on the Lord. What's your trial? Your need is for wisdom. Would you practice right now this prayer of faith for wisdom as you turn to God? Father, we have followed your word. We ask in faith, faith in you. We trust you to obey do what your word has said you will do. We trust you to give wisdom when we've asked. Thank you, God, for giving generously without finding fault. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us in the midst of the trial. Lord, lift us. Help us to suffer well. Dear God, grant us pure joy even as we endure the hardships. Not fake smiles, but Lord, a deep-rooted, gospel-informed joy. When people see us hurting, let them see you sustaining us. God, I pray that in what we've seen this morning, that you would draw 
to yourself. My friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, God, bring salvation today. Thank you for showing us the way through. Thank you for your manifest presence with us. We trust you. We praise you no matter what. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.